Hey guys, Jonathan Hilliard from Connects Media and your host on Atlanta Born and Brand here. Uh, it is the summertime, so I thought we would take a little bit of a more laid-back approach to introducing this episode. You are listening to the best of Atlanta Born and Brand Part one for summer 2019. We want to thank you guys again for listening in to season one. It was a lot of fun as we met 25 uh, different um, founders and entrepreneurs. I guess it's more than 25 since we had several multi-founder uh, episodes. But um, we're going to do something a little different this summer as we are conducting some more interviews for season two of the show. We're going to divide season one into a few different best of episodes that are kind of focused on different topics. Um, And today we're glad to get the best of season started with a few of our favorite tech talks from our season one entrepreneurs. We are bringing back three companies for this episode. Uh, Those companies are Simple Showing, Sitter Tree and Exposure. And these three founders uh, were great interviews, and I encourage you to go back and listen to those full episodes if you haven't heard their complete stories. But we're going to pull some excerpts from each one of those talks and, and let you hear those today just as a refresher to uh, what it's like to start a, a tech company in Atlanta and the processes that these entrepreneurs went through. So first up today, we've got Fred McGill from Simple Showing. He was a guest on episode three of Atlanta Born and Brand way back in uh, November of 2018. A lot has happened with Simple Showing since then. They've expanded to a couple more markets. So uh, check out simpleshowing.com to um, be up to date on what they're doing right now and, and where they're serving clients. But uh, we want to go back and hear a little bit of, a, of Fred talking about uh, starting Simple Showing and what it was like to build that brand in Atlanta. So here's uh, here's Fred McGill from Simple Showing. So I kept getting people that were like, you know, hey, um, shoot me text like, hey, I'm trying to get in this house tomorrow. Do you? I heard you have a license. You mind like? And I'm like, I'm, I can't. I can't. I'm, I'm working for Salesforce. I'm going to business school. Like, I can't go out there. Like, but of course, I did a lot of times, and I frequently would help. And I probably help you know seven or eight people buy houses and get in houses, even though that's not my job. And I would, I wouldn't really even charge them anything. I might just kick them back all the commission or whatever, um, or charge them a hundred bucks or something. So. Um, but I discovered, I was like, you know, I thought I was the only one like that. I thought I, I figured, you know, I was the only one that sort of wanted to bypass the agent and just like, I'll just get my license on. I don't need you to help me, Mr. Realtor, like tell me that these countertops are granite or tell me this backyard's too small. Like it's obvious. I already know. I just need to unlock the door. Right. Just let me in the house. And then I discovered all these friends of mine that were like, hey, um, can I get inside this house? I'm trying to put an offer in. I'm like, well, why don't you just hire an agent? And they're like, I don't need an agent. I just need to get inside. Yeah. And so all these, uh, it, it dawned on me one day where I had a, a friend of mine, she um, wanted me to show her house in uh, uh, kind of Inman Park, Reynoldstown area. Meet her there, um, sat in a bunch of traffic to get there. I finally get there, I'm sitting in the front door waiting for her and walk inside the house and, and you know, and as we're walking in, I unlock the door with my little e-key, the super e-key, which is the realtor key. And she's like, listen, I really appreciate it. I know that, you know, this is a big favor. You driving down here to let me into this house. And she's like, um, 
so like not to offend you or anything, but like, is there a way that you can like give me that key on your phone? Cause like, I actually don't need you. Like, I don't need you to meet me here and I don't actually need your opinion, but I do need to get inside the house. Is there a way that I can have that key from your phone? I'm like, no, I'm like, yeah. like it's the agent key. That's the point. Like, it's not like you have to have a license to get this little key. And so that's when I was, that's the, that's sort of when the idea of simple showing started, started brewing up. Um, and then we took that idea into that business school class, product development, which is, it wasn't called simple showing. It was basically like, Hey, what if there's an app that you could use to get inside houses? And we just started thinking through how that would work. Sure. Um, so that's kind of how it originally started. Before we go on with today's episode, I want to take a minute to address the small business owners listening to the show. Here at Atlanta Born and Brand, we hope to bring great value to you over the course of our first season. And now we're looking for a couple partners to help us do that. If you're interested in advertising your business or brand on this show, let us know. We're looking to build a team of great companies and ultimately create a network that props up all great Atlanta-run businesses. If you'd like more information, send us an email at info at atlborn.com. That's info at atlborn.com. The idea was there for Fred, but the experience wasn't. So he took one last job this time with a startup in the med tech space. He worked as VP of sales and marketing, but the real goal was simple. Immerse himself in a startup and prepare for all that would come with eventually launching a company of his own. That experience basically basically growing from 18 people to about 50 and seeing that that scale and that growth and the the processes that were integrated, the, you know, uh, building in systems for accountability with the team doing some of the digital marketing, learning around uh, how to raise money. You know, that was a big part of yeah. creating some of the spreadsheets for my, uh, the founder. Um, seeing all that, I felt like I got to like touch and feel all of the different aspects of running an early stage startup. I, I, was, I was not running the startup, but I was running the sales and marketing team. Sure. And um, that was, I think, what gave me the confidence to that realize. That was the like, drug you needed. That to, was it. To get yeah, in there. It, it also kind of confirmed that like, the startup space was more for me than the corporate space. Cause I worked for Johnson Johnson, as I told you in Chicago or yeah. for Salesforce. So the two of the biggest, those two big, you know, fortune 500 companies, right. you know, one of the biggest technology businesses and one of the big, biggest healthcare businesses. And while they were great, you know, the startup space just gives you, this is the, the, the way I like compare startups to the corporate world is that you'll never have a stronger link between, um, individual contribution and, and downstream effect meaning when you're a corporate environment like you can you can like grind and grind and grind and grind and grind and your your contribution is going to make negligible impact right sure. obviously and um and the ultimate way to make your contribution um tied to something is to work for a startup because you have so much influence based on what's going to happen yeah. and even that small team when i was at redox with 18 people the things we were doing to move the business forward were pretty pretty cool you know um and I think that's the value in startups. And so I realized, you know, I'm like, I'm never going to work for corporate America again. Yeah. Even well, if I mean, so- is it any surprise that that realization comes along when kind of like in the background of your day job, you've been, you've never been a guy that goes and buys the house that's already pretty. You yeah. like the one that you see the potential in and you, you know, invest your blood, sweat and tears into 
building through that house, you know, kind of yeah. bringing that thing to its potential. So if that's not like a perfect Parallel. metaphor for yeah. what, you know, startups are is like absolutely hundred percent potential, right? It's like, it's, it's an idea and it's just bringing about bringing it to fruition. Yeah. I think there's a lot of metaphors that are underlying metaphors too. Like whenever you go to a startup or when you, whenever you buy a house and it, it's a disaster, like it is terrible. Like it is an absolute, yeah. uh, it, yeah. it sucks. And that's the same as a startup. Like everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people think that there's a lot of glamour, obviously, in startups, and it just could not be further from the truth. Like sure. there is, I mean, maybe one day, but you know, it's just it's a constant grind, right? And that's no that's kind of how houses are. Now, I think the one downside is like when you go and you sell your flip, like the last the last kind of like. 10% is like really fun. You know, oh, the last 10% where you're the like, reward is just, yeah, you're like, you're painting the, you, you, you know, put the like marble countertops in, you paint the walls, you like do the light, you know, put cabinet hardware in like, that's the fun yeah. part. And you get to see like the very end, you take the final pictures and it's like your little baby. Right. And it just looks so perfect. That's the fun part, the very yeah. end. And I don't think we've, we've definitely are nowhere close to that in terms of this startup, but I think there are a lot of parallels if you end up exiting the company, right? Mm -hmm. You end up selling it. It's almost kind of like sad, right? You're like, wait a minute, uh, I, I kind of want to keep it, right. but you have to sell it, you know? Right. <laughs> so um, that that's a whole nother philosophical conversation around like, sure. you know, do you want to try and exit the business, sell it, grow it, create a lifestyle company, whatever, right? But Well, I mean, over the life, maybe it's all those things, you know? That's true. And, that's and true. Yeah. I think that's one thing that startups struggle with now is like timing of when is that perfect exit? Yeah. You know, because you hear the, the story about, okay, everybody freaked out when Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars. Yeah. It's oh, like, yeah. oh, it was less than, you know, a mm -hmm. year old at that point. Mm -hmm. and now, now it's, it's worth like 20 billion, like, <laughs> 50 billion, whatever that yeah. number is. But yeah. anyhow, let's get into the nitty gritty kind of, of what simple showing is. So we talked about the initial problem of, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the research is done on the consumer side in yeah. a lot of cases now. And that wasn't reflected in mm -hmm. kind of the business model of what real estate is. So what, yeah. is, what does simple showing do to kind of remedy that? Yeah. And, I, and I'll say this, like, you know, the original concept around, you know, what I was telling you about around, like, I wish there was a way, we wish there was a way that back in business school that you could just unlock a door, any door and get inside the house. That, that concept was birthed out of the, the, um, understanding of how Airbnb works and <clears throat> the way Airbnb works is of course you, you know, book a hotel or excuse me, you book a house, let's say. And perfect examples when I was at Redox, that other company, I went and stayed in Boston for a HubSpot conference. Here we use HubSpot. Um, and it's, uh, you know, two blocks from the conference center and all the hotels around there were like $500 while well, I was working for a startup. And they're like, we can't send you there for three days for $1,500. And so I found an Airbnb for, you know, $130 or whatever. Right. And <clears throat> it was the first time I'd ever stayed in Airbnb. This is only like two years ago, three yeah. years ago. And first time I'd ever stayed in Airbnb and walk into the guy's house he leaves the key like in the front, this little mailbox and this little like kind of lockbox thing, right? Walk in, um, you know, set up my stuff in, in the bedroom and like an hour or two later, the guy gets in, he owns a house, right? He's, he's living there too. Yeah. And we go to sleep and like my bedroom's here and like on the other side of the wall where the headboard <laughs> is, is his bedroom. I've never met this guy, right? He doesn't kill me. I don't kill him. Like everything's normal. We wake up, the guy's got like, so, so, you know, the point is it's, it's amazing when you think about it that you can, as a consumer, you can fly across the country to, to Boston or Seattle or whatever, right? Or across the world to the Philippines and stay in an Airbnb, 
no one dies. Yeah. Everything's fine. You can walk in the house. Generally, nothing gets, you know, people don't get robbed. Of course, there's insurance policies to support yeah. uh, claims against that and things of that nature. But but it's crazy if you think about it, if you just stop and think about it for a second, that yeah. you can go into someone's home that they own and they're, they're, they're most of the time living in as well, <clears throat> oftentimes, and stay there for 24 hours, sleep there, maybe sometimes multiple days. But yet you cannot walk into a house that you're trying to buy in the city of Atlanta or any city in America yeah. without a real estate agent attached to your side. Why is that? You know, it makes no sense. Guaranteed, this is not, this may not be in the next like five years, but guaranteed what's going to happen eventually is with the advent of, of smart homes where you have like the, the little ring doorbell, you can see someone when they get to your house with the nest, you know, ther- thermometers and the smart home and the connected home and this, you know, the IOT um, devices where you walk in, there's cameras everywhere for the babies and, eventually there will be digital access to every house guaranteed so you will not be using a physical key now that might take several several years it may take a couple decades i don't know technology is there now technology is most certainly there now and and there really there really isn't a need to have an agent beside your you know by your side to let you in a house there's really not a need to have an agent walk you inside a house the only need for and there is some need for a buyer's agent and that would be to help you structure an offer correctly And there's also um, some guidance that's needed around, you know, how to coordinate an inspection, for example, how to like dissect that, interpret an inspection report, uh, maybe how to obtain financing. But, but by and large, that issue that, that most people don't understand exists. The reason why people don't think this is a big deal and they, it hasn't dawned on the broader, you know, consumer population yet is because the vast, and if, if anything, like, bleeds through on this podcast hopefully this does someone listens but um is that most people in america don't understand that their buyer's agent is not a free service and so what i mean by that is everyone has this perception that like oh i'm using an agent but it's free so it's okay and technically that's true in of that you don't write a check to your agent right so that that part is true you're not writing a check then but if you're buying a three hundred thousand dollar home your agent whoever you use let's say you're using sally the realtor um, and she's your friend from high school. She's great. Your wife loves her. You know, they play tennis together, whatever, right? Well, Sally is earning $9,000 on that transaction of a, of a $300,000 home. That's 3% times 300 grand. Where do you think that three th- that $9,000 is coming from? It is not coming from the seller. It's coming into, it's embedded in the cost of that home. It actually sure. comes out, if you look at a settlement statement, it's coming out of your mortgage. So whenever you get the loan funded at closing, what happens is, you sign all these, these paperwork, you know, all the, of these docs, and then the lawyers send that paperwork back in on the settlement statement. Once it funds, they call it, then they disperse the money right. out of your loan. And that, the seller wants that equity back. Correct. Yeah. And, and that, that, that disbursement of whatever you're getting your loan through, if you're getting a loan through SunTrust or whatever, they're dispersing those funds to your agent off of your loan. So point moral of the story is you are paying for your agent. Right. I'm sorry. But so that's the big problem is people are like, ah, I don't, yeah, I could get inside a house I really want to on my own, but I'll just bring Sally because great, great, but you're paying for it. Just know that, you know? Yeah. And so that that's the broader problem is that if people understood that and they're like, and, and most people now, it's evolving such that most millennials, they're they're very much, I talk about this a lot, they're very much contrarians into that. They're like, why does it work this way? Why does this happen? Mm-hmm. And that's helping us because they're like, I can do this by myself. Why do I need a realtor? And so the more that sort of sentiment grows, it's going to help us because they'll start to unpack the problem and understand like, Hey, I, why do I need an agent to let me sell this house? And why do I, why am I paying her 10,000 bucks sure. when I found this house? It's interesting. You know, we talked about the marketing side 
you being a a tech startup in a lot of ways, you mm-hmm. know, with the technology that you guys have put into the app, millennials, you know, I know, and maybe maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if if this is wrong, but they care more about how a brand looks and feels. Yeah. Than maybe ever before. So Absolutely. did you know right off the bat that you had to have your brand had mm-hmm. to be good looking? It had to be hip. It had yeah. to feel current. What was it? What was the thought process? We there? yeah, I like that. I mean, we had to have we wanted to have something that was edgy enough. We we're we're trying to strike this delicate balance. I don't know that we've necessarily nailed it yet, but I think we're getting closer and closer each month probably. But because because brand also. Um, informs like your your copy, you know, what right. you put on your website, what you put on your ads, right. um, and so I think what we've tried to we've tried to find this delicate balance of being edgy such that we, we don't sound like a traditional real estate right. agent or broker, right. um, because if you do that, your message gets diluted out and it doesn't stand out above the crowd and above yeah. all the other agents that are advertising. But if you sound too edgy and too you know sort of um, almost risky, right? And almost kind of like, um, you know, reckless, something reckless, but yeah, Yeah. yeah, that's very, uh, apart, different from the, you know, the common commonly tread path. Then with something that's so important, like buying a house, you're spending a lot of money. It's an important choice, obviously, you know, then it, it it becomes, it's, it's kind of depending on the swung away, you know, a little, little too much. Right. So like, you know, cause we, we started, (laughs) we had some ads in the beginning that were like, you know, you're real. That was like, Shock and awe, like your realtor sucks. Like that was the ad. <laughs> yeah, and people I, I like, saw a couple of like those. you know, like that. Yeah. That you know, people are like, wait, what? And so they're like, are you an agent or not? And so it was almost confusing for people. So we've tested a lot of stuff like that, and and then they're like, you know, real, your realtor sucks. And they're like, yeah, they do. And then they discover that we're agents too, and they're like, wait a minute, but you're a realtor. I'm like, yeah, but here's the thing, you know. And so it's yeah. hard to explain. So I think that you're absolutely right in of that. The um, we're trying to to you know the whole branding uh, and appealing to millennials is is um, a thing that I don't think we've mastered yet, but I think that we stand out enough. They really want to save money because they're mindful of, you know, those, those savings that exist. Saving money is how Simple Showing gets customers in the door. But I wanted to know what the long-term play was. So I asked Fred, is your company ultimately a discount realtor or is there a much bigger plan involved? Currently, what our app does is just allows buyers to consumers to book property showings on demand. Right. And so you do the shopping on your own. You find an area you like. You want to buy in Reynolds Town, pick out two or three houses, go on our app, you know, book book a time, pick a day, pick a day, pick a de- uh, time. We show up, we unlock the door, um, and then we give you half the commission back. Right. So there's no commitment. You don't have to sign any like the normal. Normally, you would sign like a buyer broker agreement with a realtor. We don't do that. There's no contracts you have to sign. There's no commitment. There's no obligation. It's completely free. Um, and then we, we write the contract like a normal agent. We go through the whole process, help you buy it, kick back at the commission. But um, what we're eventually going to do is expand our platform such that you can do everything all in our app, meaning you book the tour, and let's say you see it tomorrow at 3 o'clock or whatever, right? You really liked it, and so you go back in, you log in, and you create an offer inside our app. Wow. And so you put, you put a number in there, I'm going to offer, yeah. you know, $305,000, and then we're going to have very much like a TurboTax style guidance. Like, cause they're, they're, the thing that people don't realize is on a, on a real estate contract, there's really, even though it's like eight pages in Georgia, which is kind of long, 
there's really only like four things you can change. Right. So all the other stuff is kind of like pre-paked boilerplate language. Yeah. So you really just need the price. You need the number of due diligence days, what's your earnest money amount, what day you're going to close and any special tips. That's it. So that's how you scale is get that technology in place that, that kind of eliminates the friction between, uh, you know, agent and buyer, I guess. Eliminates the friction and also helps us with respect to like manual, manually, you know, putting a lot of this stuff sure. in. So it helps them, sure. you know, we can, everything can be e-signed, which most of it's e-signed already, but right. so they can create that offer online. And so what we're also planning to do is, is verticalize our business such that when they get to that point, they're about to make an offer, you ordinarily would attach a pre-approval letter. Mm. And so we're going to have, we're exploring partnerships with, um, lenders, really brokers so that we could have them get pre-approved on our platform and we could monetize that as well. So there's some, there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, because if you have a lot of buyers going through your platform, you need to offer them some right. sort of mechanism to get pre-approved. Right. So we think that there's an opportunity there and we plan to do that. Um, and then eventually the goal is that when, when sellers are paying $5,000 to this, what if we brought them a buyer because buyers are coming in and right. we're, we're their, their buyer's agents. You've got uh, a database of buyers. Already. We got a database of yeah. buyers. So in those situations, it is possible. And what we plan to do is have um, a Twilio style or an SMS alert mm. that that sellers can basically receive from directly from buyers. So if you want to book a showing for a house, it completely bypasses us, goes directly to the seller, and the seller can approve showings with us sitting in the middle. Realtors are going to love that. And so realtors are They're not going to like love it. love that. So, uh, <laughs> but, but think about it. From a seller perspective, if we can say, hey, we're only going to charge you $5,000, but guess what? Yep. There's a chance you have to pay $0 to the buyer's agent because there's not one. So right. that's where it really becomes a game changer because every time we talk to a consumer, this happens every single week, every week, every week, every week. They're like, this is really cool. All I have to do is pay $5,000, right? Well, no. hold on. You got to pay the buyer's agent. Right. Everyone, of course, is always disappointed because no one wants to pay a buyer's agent. That's when it becomes really interesting yeah. when we can create a marketplace, a peer-to-peer marketplace such that the buyer and the seller transact with one another and there's no buyer yeah. agent fee in the middle. Then people get really inspired to list with us. Sure. Because <laughs> they're like, this is sweet. You're going to only charge me $5,000 and there's a chance. Right. You've already got a pool of people that might buy my house. Right. Yeah. So that's where I think it's going for us. That's going to take us several months to, to build out, maybe even a year. But, um, but sure. as we grow, that's what's going to happen. And brand is so important. It's such an integral part of that because. Yeah. You got to educate people. Got it. Yeah. And, and they have to make it trusted so that people mm-hmm. feel like they, you know, someone's going to get pre-approved with us. They got to trust. Yeah, you said that. Yeah. Yeah. They got to trust us. And um, there's got to be, I think, a lot of authenticity around, you know, us being somewhat edgy, but also somewhat like, sure. you know, still seeming sophisticated. You know, yeah, you almost. I'm glad you said that, too, because I think some people think brand means the shock and awe. But yeah. it's just as much that trust angle, especially yeah. when you're dealing with major decisions like buying a house and totally, yeah. mortgaging your, your life and future. Your life and future <laughs> and ch- children's future, yeah. Again, to hear the rest of Fred and Simple Showing story, go back and listen to episode three of Atlanta Born and Brand, and you'll get the complete rundown from Fred's background uh, growing up in Gainesville to uh, what Simple Showing is up to today. Uh, Next up on our best of compilation in this tech episode is Jody Stevenson of Sittertree. Jody has an incredible story of uh, going to college at Oglethorpe University and starting uh, what eventually became Sitter Tree, which is a babysitting uh, app and scheduling request service that uh, that sets up 
of babysitters with uh, families in need in the Atlanta area and Sitter Tree is absolutely exploding. You'll hear in this episode they've done over 25,000 jobs since 2014, uh, their official launch, and uh, they are expanding quickly. They're already in Athens, and uh, as Jody said in her original episode, they are going to be uh, moving into some other locations around the southeast very, very quickly. So sit back and enjoy this excerpt from our interview with Jody Stevenson from Sitter Tree. Sitter Tree is a scheduling and assignment app for young moms and we have the most rigorous uh, babysitting vetting process in the industry and we make it possible for moms to request mom rated sitters whenever they need them um, and we take care of the rest. We just talked in the in the coffee shop, but you're not a Georgia native, but like a couple of guests we've already had, you are from Ohio. Yeah, the so. Midwest uh, produces really hardworking people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say yeah. a little bit of the hustle. And so, sure. um, like I started working when I was 14, and wow. so I had like three jobs through high school, like at hmm. the same time. And hmm. so was always driven to to work and yeah then like we started saving my mom had to save for our college education from 14 you had to save a thousand dollars every summer before you could spend any of your summer like job money and so then once you got to once we got to school we were we were responsible for all of our own spending money so I came to school at Oglethorpe right. um, in Atlanta, and then you know, knowing that I needed to make my own money, I worked at work study in the library, okay. and um, I think at the time I was making like six twenty five an hour. Mm. <laughs> it's like um, a lot of checking out books, and sure. so I just really was kind of bored. And so, what used to happen before Facebook, because this is in like ninety nine two thousand, yeah, um, moms would come to schools and they would post a flyer and it would have all these like tear off tabs, right? Like, mm-hmm. I need a babysitter. Here's my number. So I um, started taking some of the tabs and calling the parents, um, and eventually I would just take down the whole poster so Mm. that no one else could take the babysitting jobs. (laughs) So I was babysitting for a ton of families at Oglethorpe. Um, And then... So um, there's a competitive streak there. I mean, some would say. Some would say. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so then after I started babysitting, then I would have my friends. So like, we also know, you know, in addition to no Facebook, we had landlines, you know, like you plug Mm -hmm. it into the wall actually, right? You you remember this. I do. Um, And so... People would call. I had two landlines in my dorm room. So people would call into my dorm room, book a sitter, like parents would leave me a message, and then I would actually, you know, farm the job out to some other student mm-hmm. who would then slip me $5 in an envelope through the campus mailbox <laughs> system. <laughs> and so Oglethorpe, thank you. Thank you for yeah. all the $5 checks that got made it to my mailbox. So That's yeah. so cool. So first, tell me why Atlanta and why Oglethorpe for you? So why Atlanta is that I am from the big metropolis of Sandusky, Ohio. You may have seen it if you're a Tommy Boy fan. Um, (laughs) And so my mom actually had encouraged me, like, just try something new outside of Ohio, outside of the small town. Um, And um, I had, you know, seen Georgia Tech, actually. I thought I wanted to be an engineer. Um, So I came on a college visit and um, 
toured Oglethorpe's campus and fell in love with just the beauty of the campus. If anyone's ever been to Brookhaven and seen the campus, it's gorgeous. Um, And then the beauty of the really large closets. (laughs) (laughs) So I was 18 and making this massive decision on my own. Um, My mom at the time was sick, and so my parents weren't with me on the college visit. And so made that decision and... Honestly, like I have discovered since then, I'm a bit of an introvert. So a small campus with small class sizes where you really get a lot of interaction with the, the professors really was perfect for was me. For you. Yeah. And then also the, the campus really supported, so I'm an entrepreneur and I've started a number of different things. And so they would always support me doing, like I hosted dinners for students just to have discussions around um, interesting topics. And yeah. like they would fund you know, the, the student uh, activities would pay for the cost of the dinner and all of that. And so they just did a number of things to really support what I was doing. And even still, they continue to support Cedratree and, you know, making sure that other students on campus have access to it. You begin to corner the, the babysitting market at yeah. Oglethorpe University. Mm-hmm. Does it does it have a name at this point? Did you have a plan for it? Did you think, hey, we've got some legs here? How, just how big was this getting while you're in school? So I was definitely not thinking of doing this long-term. It was called the playgroup because moms would talk about it at the playgroups where they went with other moms, right? And they were passing it around as like, I guess it came up as one of the must-have items for new moms. And so pretty soon these different playgroups and these mothers of multiples clubs, Hmm. um, you know, started passing the name around. Um, And I would honestly take as many jobs as I could um, and then... I think it was about a year into it before I actually thought, I'm booking. I had this like Excel document where I'm writing, you know, doing all these bookings. I had note cards with all the parents' names written on it. Yes. And I thought, I'm doing all these jobs. I should, I should like write a letter to the parents and tell them that I'm going to charge them. So I wrote this two or three page letter. Um, I used to send them just all the names of the sitters, but I wrote this two to three page letter and said, you're going to have to pay me $40 a year and I'll book your sitters. And I can still remember the first check that I got from Katie Barksdale. And I was like, that's crazy. All I had to do was ask, and now I've got $40 to do this booking. So um, that's kind of how it started. So you got the check from Katie Barksdale, but did you get any angry None of them. Moms were like, pay for babysitters? Yes. And Katie actually, uh, since then, has told me that she thought I had thousands of members. And she was just one more parent, you know, that just had a trustworthy option for babysitters. So So by the time you finished school, did this go on throughout the time you were in school? It did. And so by the time I graduated, over 10% of the campus was babysitting. Wow. Um, Yeah. So, and then I actually... It was, especially consider no Facebook. I mean, try to bring yourself back in a world without social Mm -hmm. media. Um, And it really was um, connecting with students on campus. And um, college students, obviously, that's the one thing they need is flexible income. And Mm -hmm. so there were other students in my... Oglethorpe is is a really diverse school with a lot of first-generation college students. So that that is synonymous with people who need to work while they're in school exactly. so that they're not having massive amounts of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, even for myself, I was an RA, I applied for scholarships, I was doing all of this, but babysitting at the time, I was earning 12 to $20 an hour babysitting. And this is in, again, this is almost 20 years ago now. Wow. So, yeah. That's impressive. So, well, and you also had the benefit being at Oglethorpe, your, your kind of pool of sitters 
just the fact that you're a student in Oglethorpe is going to come with some immediate credibility and a trust factor with the families, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Especially in Brookhaven. Like all of the historic Brookhaven area, really, um, all the way through um, up to Sandy Springs in in that area. um, I mean, if you're a parent and you're in a new city, and you don't have access to a college campus, Where? how do you get out of your house? Yeah. Like that really, that problem, <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know how, what parents yeah. do do to, in order to, to solve that. I did a, I think it was 25 pages of bullet, single line bullet pointed, this is what I would want it to do, hmm. um, and found a developer that said, I can help start this. I mean, pages, when 20. people, I now tell people when I'm like gonna work with them, especially yeah. men, I'm like, I just want you to know I'm extremely (laughs) detail oriented and that's a criticism of like female entrepreneurs that they take too long to perfect things. So I really always have to kind of guard against myself waiting till it's to my level of satisfaction and I have to kind of push it out earlier. But, um, I've been working with the same two, a web developer and designer for the last five years Hmm. and they are a dream because they understand now how I work. They speak your language now. yeah, Yeah. And so they, they let me like do it to the level of detail, even if it's, you know, moving something, centering it, left aligned, you know, like doing sure. all the different minor tweaks. Um, sure. uh, so, yeah, but we actually have accomplished those 25 pages and more. <laughs> so they've, they've There you go, done set goals and sometimes you hit them. <laughs> yeah. Jody returned to Atlanta and began attacking a massive to-do list to prepare her babysitter booking company for a rebrand and relaunch. The company officially launched its website in October of 2014 and has since completed over 25,000 babysitting jobs. They're on pace to complete over 40,000 by the end of this year. But there were a number of questions her team had to answer early on to separate them from a sea of other app-based babysitting services. Knowing the difference between what you should automate and what you should not automate Mm -hmm. has always been essential because I didn't just want to scale I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, we launched a babysitting app. We've got so many users. And for me, it's not about launching an app. It's about providing quality childcare at scale right. for families. And so I wasn't willing to either A, grow it faster where I would risk losing the quality. Um, and I also wasn't just looking to remove the relational component out of that. Like I am a firm believer in community. I'm firm, a firm believer in family. And so the ethos of everything that Sittertree is about is how do you really build a community where there's trust and trust technology is a gift, but to be able to build trust with technology, um, that's where the secret sauce of Sittertree kind of comes in. So I wanted to, the first thing to do was as we continue to build our tech or our web app out, um, what things do we need to put in place to automate so that we can scale? Um, And then divide out what things are we, again, not going to automate. And so just making those decisions, the technology piece was definitely number one on that. Um, And then at the time, I was kind of doing all of this. So I started to build the team and I looked first within like our, my own sitters because I had these committed sitters who had already proven themselves. Um, and over the All last- very well-educated, like people you can trust. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. And, and honestly, I, that has been one of the biggest learning curves for me is who, not only who can do the job well, but who also works with my personality, which sure. is growing, dreaming, uh, you know, having more ideas than I know what to do with, certainly. Yeah. 
So over the years, I now have a team of four people okay. and um, exceptional women that the character, competency, and chemistry. Those are the three things that I've kind of looked at. And all of them um, look at sitters the same way and families. So it's truly a, this is, this is not a user. This is part of our community. And how do we listen and serve the needs that that family uniquely has? Um, or how do we even with sitters? We recognize that sitters are typically um, college age or young professionals. Sometimes this is their first professional experience. And we're actually professionalizing babysitting because sure. we expect you to show up on time, um, be dressed appropriately, follow directions, engage, communicate effectively. So those are the skills that you can take into any job. And so with our sitters, as we're re receiving reviews, each of those four coordinators is actually making sure if there's a if there's, if there's a trend with a specific sitter that she can go back and say, hey, Sally sitter, um, right. let's talk about this. Let's let me help you. Um, see how you might be able to change that to be able to improve your ratings. So there's a major developmental uh, element to, to what you do. And like you said, you know, next time better than the last time, basically. Just yeah. with the feedback that you're able to get. And we, so we average 98% five-star ratings from families. Wow. And that's over the last three years. So we actually, we don't provide training for our sitters, but it's more so just even... When we surveyed the sitters to figure out what is it that you want most, um, quite honestly, like words of affirmation were hmm. of the top two two things. And so we now know that if Sarah Bath, who's the head of our sitter program, if she can help those sitters to feel appreciated and to be set up for success, um, then the sitters also are part of something. And they're not only getting, um, like Oglethorpe students, since we launched Sitter Tree, Oglethorpe students alone have made over $100,000 in babysitting money. Hmm. And so... And that's just a handful of students. And so if we can keep them in the community longer and they feel like they belong, then it's not just answering a dollar question for them. It's actually giving them kind of a family. Like for me, babysitting gave me a family away from Ohio. And I'm yeah. still in touch with Katie Barksdale. I'm still, you know, like I'm still in touch with a number of the families that I was the babysitter yeah. because that's how important it was to me also. Sure. So yeah. why, why Sitter Tree? How did that name come about? That's a fun question. I actually... Um, at the time, Sitter City, there was the, these massive uh, platforms that were launching, but it was a lot of the connection with none of the relationship. Wow. And so uh, for me, growing up on a small farm in Ohio, um, what I envision when I think of babysitters was this literally this giant oak tree that we had where it's there's a swing under it. It's like your neighborhood. It's, it's a little bit of the leave it to beaver as far as... Um, 1950s um, true neighborhood where you knew your neighbor and w where you weren't sure. so busy that you even knew your neighbor's 15-year-old daughter that eventually would come over and be your babysitter. Right. And so I wanted to kind of take the idea of a city and oppose that with the idea of something that's organic and natural and um, really kind of brings people back to an old school kind of remembrance of what that the, there's the a trust. personal connection yeah, uh, associated with. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, anybody who can design an app can put together the basic, you know, infrastructure for a babysitting uh, conglomerate or service. Mm -hmm. But it seems like where you guys are really differentiating yourselves is that small town, just uh, very trustworthy type feel with with the interactions. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and the yeah. thing that I think what we are trying to prove is that you can scale that. Hmm. So scale sometimes 
seems like it's contradictory to local and um but there obviously there are ways to be able to take a local feel and be able to share that with more people um and our our, we use technology to do that in part um the things that you know we measure what matters to us um we and we do a lot of measurement on our back end so a lot of people who do build a basic scheduling app don't have the rigorous um back-end elements that we are looking at and they also um so um we've also part of what we've wanted on at sitter trees we want to engage fathers so now our app is so simple that your husband can book the babysitter <laughs> you're welcome moms of atlanta yeah. yes <laughs> um it's funny because in my house because it's an app, I would have to be the one to book. Oh, really? Book the, uh, babysitter. <laughs> My wife would say, "Is there a phone number I can just call?" And That's they, so funny. Well, we have both. No. There you go. There you go. So I do think that when I say the local feel, what I don't want to confuse it with is that we're only trying to serve Atlanta because we. I mean, again, we're about to do our twenty-fifth thousand job, and this year we'll yeah. cross more than forty thousand jobs, and. We are trying to scale, we're trying to go outside of Atlanta, but we are trying to be very thoughtful about which levers that we pull to to release and to scale, and then which ones that we really maintain um, a closer touch so that so that people who are using it, people like your family, your wife, sure. you feel like there's a high touch, high quality, um, you know, strategic, um, I guess just component to what we're doing so that right. you're not just getting a sitter that I mean, who knows this girl? Who knows that? You know, like yeah. you're you're really getting someone that someone has handpicked and done everything that you and your wife would do to select her. Sitter Tree is a well-oiled machine now, continuing to grow and beginning to expand to additional markets. But I had to ask Jody one last question: Is running this company still as fulfilling as it was back at the beginning? And if so, what are the things that give you that feeling? That feeling that it's all been worth it. That is a fantastic question because I have two places I go for that. Number one is I have um, an email label in my email account that says uh, sweet Y emails. So when I get an email from a sitter or family that just says, oh my gosh, like this is an answer for what our family needed to be able to, for our marriage or for um, just for myself personally as a, as a mom to be able to get out. I save those emails because they mean the world. Oh yeah. yeah. And then I actually go through the reviews. So our coordinators review every single review they go through every, every day. Um, But I go through the family reviews because when I see what a mom who either we have a lot of first-time moms that they've never booked a sitter so no grandparents in town you know like no family no other options we're going to be booking a sitter through an online you know app Um, and when i see their reviews um about how surprised they were or about how it's basically boiling down to peace of mind but it's even more than peace of mind because it's peace of mind is like okay, I know my kids are going to be alive and safe when I come back, but they are raving about this, not just a babysitter. They're, you know, by name, you know, Victoria was incredible. Jacqueline was incredible. And so when I read that um, from moms, that for me is like, that's why we do what we do. If you want to hear more about Jody Stevenson and Sitter Tree's story, uh, please go back to episode 12 of Atlanta Born and Brand and listen to her story in its entirety. Uh, really, really great stuff. And um, it's a pleasure to know Jody and uh, her entire team 
who uh, we've become good friends with over the previous few months. So best of luck to Jody. Uh, check out SitterTree.com if you are a family in need. Last but not least on this week's show is Luke Beard from Exposure.co. Originally on episode 17 of Atlanta Born and Brand, Luke told us the story about how he immigrated from Great Britain, uh, landed in San Francisco, uh, found the need for a new platform to tell stories with photography, and uh, eventually built exposure. Uh, We think that this interview is going to provide some great insight to you guys who are building a a tech platform or an app of some kind, as uh, Luke identified a need and and clearly attacked it uh, in a way that um, resonated with his potential customers. So, Let's uh, throw it back to an excerpt from this interview with Luke Beard from Exposure. So, Allopath is like a too long didn't read. It was a, it was a ideas incubator, um, mm-hmm. started by Jake Ludwig, the Vimeo founder. Yeah. Um, historically raised money with no idea, which I loved about it. <laughs> uh, he basically his premise was put enough creative developers. Creative developers spanned designers, engineers, writers, like anybody who made stuff. Yeah. In one room, give them the resources they make to make versions of the tools they want to see in the world yeah. or the things they want to see and eventually they'll be a hit hmm. um for someone like a maker like me who like you know would very you know very often like try to sell typography posters or build products yeah or they um it was it seemed like the perfect environment because yeah. they were like you ship we want to ship stuff and i'm like sounds awesome let's yeah. do it um and being surrounded by people who've been helping enable your ideas was really good yeah um so i joined there and one of the one of the sign-on gifts they gave me was like a Canon, 5, uh, Canon 5D Mark III, which I really didn't expect because I gave them, they were like, you seem... It's a pretty awesome sign-on gift. I know. They yeah. were like, you seem really into photography because uh, I've been really into my phone. Yeah. Uh, would you like a camera? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. Like, here's a list. And that I remember at the end, I was like, I'll split a like, Mark III with you. Yeah. And they were like, nah, we already ordered it. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> um, still like... Small town rural kid can't yeah. understand Silicon Valley money at this point. <laughs> uh, I still don't. Yeah. Um, so some of it's not real. It, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, it, you have yeah. to like, yeah, it's it's just a very odd place to yes. try and wrap your head around. Um, anyway, so they gave me a camera. Uh, I had to go home for some for some vacations. Uh, not vacation. Um, I had to go home to sort some visa stuff out. Hmm. So I took this camera, which I was learning to use. Like it was the first, my first like real DSLR. Yeah. Um, I kind of like figured out the photos I wanted to take from like a stylistic standpoint. I was like, oh, yeah. cool. Like I bought a 40 mil pancake lens. I was like, this is kind of focal length I like. Mm. Um, I'd been learning Lightroom to like process the photos in a way that I was never a fan of over photos. I wanted like a right. editorial kind of vibe. Like sure. high, you know, high contrast, like black blacks, like crushed highlights. Yeah. all good. Mm-hmm. Um, so during this time, I went to Estonia to see the original startup folks, like Zerpli. Yeah. So I went to Estonia to meet them. Because they've moved back from California at this point. Uh, I had an awesome time. Tallinn is a beautiful city. You should go. Okay. Um, it's so far into Europe. It's like <laughs> right next to Russia. Yeah. Um, and I took the new camera. And I had an awesome time. Yeah. Went to like an old Russian prison. Took a bunch of photos of chairs. It was it was like I had this big visual story to tell. Yeah. Um, and also I just genuinely started committing more into like I want to be a photographer. Right. Um, so when I came back from that trip... I like went through all these photos. I picked the ones that tell the story and edit them, and 
and that's where I started to realize I had nowhere to put them. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of, I don't know, that was maybe, I think, four months after I joined. I kind of like been collaborating on other projects yeah. before then. And this is what year, roughly? Start of 2013. Okay, gotcha. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd, I had sat down with a problem, and I was in a particular environment where I could build solutions for it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, now it's it's different because mm. like now Exposure is like a company and like yeah. I have a vision for it. But then it was like I had a very simple problem. Mm-hmm. Then I, I was like, well, Instagram is is a moment. Like they're really good sure. at sharing a moment. Yep. And I wanted the same experience for sharing a story, like more context, more photos. <laughs> really liked what Medium were doing, kind of felt similar, but not yeah. quite right. I was like, what if I build a medium for photo essays? That was literally what I said to Kyle at the time. He's yeah. like, we're in an environment where you can build this. Just design <laughs> some stuff and we'll figure it out. It's funny you, you mentioned that, though, because if you look at the major social networks in the last couple of years, what of the, the innovations that they've made are based around telling longer stories. You which know, disappear. Which, dis- <laughs> which disappear. <laughs> Granted. <laughs> so, um, but... All that to say, you were clearly onto something that other people had a desire for as well. There was a convergence of ideas at that point. I uh, Facebook started moving towards a, visu- a similar visual language. Yeah. Um, for linear, like visually focused mm-hmm. storytelling, um, there was a company called Storehouse, which mm-hmm. went like mobile first. And yeah. honestly, when you were like squinting your eyes, you really couldn't tell the difference between exposure and them. <laughs> um, but they were like full of Apple designers and mm-hmm. raised $7 million in capital and we're like on the Today Show showing it off and things like that. So they, they went yeah. a completely different track. They they lasted till 2015. Um, but super interesting to follow because people yeah. would honestly email us and be like, why would I use you over you? And yeah. It was a, it was, it was a, it was a, uh, it was like a fast track uh, course in how competitive products work in the same landscapes hmm. um and i wasn't building a company at that point we were still building a product so. right so the take me through those first steps of of solving that problem and beginning to design and, and implement that product what were what were the early days of that like um so Elpath had a really rough model there was never any true rules which mm-hmm. was hilarious they used to call it like a darwinian environment which i was always <laughs> fun um there was sketch beta business so yeah. sketch being the incredibly janky prototype or mm-hmm. like the way you can convey your idea sure and beta being like if this feels right to you like turn it into like productize it and like see if you can get it into people's hands yeah and if that starts working like figure out how to make money from it and turn it into a business mm-hmm. um which i could always appreciate that like i still think about it almost weekly that that was the process yeah um so that was it the first horrible designs were done in my mom's house like mm-hmm. sat in my kitchen <laughs> because mm-hmm. i was still like away doing visa stuff yeah um we got enough designs down i knew enough like photographer friends i was just like taking their content that they were mm. posting on their like horrible tumblr blogs <laughs> and turning it into something that felt like super luxurious yeah because i was reading a lot of quarterlies at the time and i just was like it sounds dumb but like like how do you get the feeling of these like really premium publications like kinfolk like I, i've never read a kinfolk mm. in my life but i had like a stack of them because i thought they were like beautiful objects right, right like how do you how do you get that feeling onto like a like a digital canvas 
Um, so as I, Tavani would say, a delightful experience. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, that, I always thought about like how magical it felt to like publish an Instagram photo. Yeah. And I know they're not exactly the same, but there's a experience around it, which I really wanted to kind of bring over. Yeah. Like how can you make this type of storytelling like super efficient, super effective, and most importantly, like beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, that's like all CMSs eventually become awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like let's avoid that. Um, so yeah, we like had this janky version. I like showed it to the people I stole their content. Um, my friend Tom Walsh, who was like a touring photographer, like um, a cinematographer, he, he had like a bunch of great content. Yeah, uh, he'd be on the road with like Architects, like a huge, huge band, hmm. huge metal band. And um, so I like took all that and put it into a story. He was like, "This looks great." Um, Ashley Baxter, who's like a, uh, she's an entrepreneur. She she does an insurance company in the UK, but she's always been a really cool photographer. Hmm. I, like took a bunch of her like blogger content and yeah. like put it in there she was like this looks awesome so kind of once i like, validated the format the yeah. visual language enough like we just was like screw it let's make it mm-hmm. so the janky prototype was horrible <laughs> but it was enough where i could like drag and drop yeah type in the page like mm. almost uh, uh almost like a very native web experience sure kind of like how the internet should have been right um that worked took it to like a beta phase where we like you know whole new code base got to america at this point me and kyle were in the same room we just cranked on it for like four or five months yeah uh got it in a really good spot kind of did a beta period where you know i just put it on my instagram i was like hey like do you want to come use this ended up with a bunch of really great content like mostly travel um but kind of like touches of sports and things like that and brand work um and when i knew it was working at that point because yeah. people were asking like how can i connect my domain to it so if you want to run your custom domains on uh, if you make a product that people want to put their domain on yeah like yeah in in a weird way that's like product market fit sure <laughs> um obviously lots to do with product market fit and that's a big because people are signing their name to your right product, i mean basically. it's yeah. it, i mean they're trusting your product yeah um that works we've had people paying in beta so mm. we're like we have a business like let's just launch it yeah um and that was kind of like, yeah, December 2013. It was mm-hmm. like out in the world, had a chat. Like our biggest press today is still like a Verge article. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was, it was pretty organic. Like it felt, it, it didn't feel forced and it felt like we were definitely building the solution that we wanted. Yeah. Well, and that's that kind of transitions into where I wanted to take you because you mentioned your competitor that was on the Today Show and it was very kind of in your face marketing campaign. Um, what were the early steps of, branding that okay now you have this product that you know works and that people like what were the early steps for you to to start to spread the word and get that that message out to people uh it was inherently viral which mm-hmm. is how super helpful um mm-hmm. so one of in hindsight of the five years the exposure has existed in the world like i have basically done zero marketing hmm. <laughs> i have a product which has a logo on it which people are fine with apparently living on and they share it across yeah their networks um it would be nowhere without that for mm-hmm. sure um but we we really didn't do a whole lot we just it was five years of like intense product work it was just yeah. like what is the best solution that we can build right now for this problem right um and we just kept doing that like going back and iterating and <laughs> we started to build in the community aspect of it pretty early on like with a search and community categories so mm-hmm. you know it it morphed into like a vision of like you know what if we create like a really great place on the internet to discover and publish visual storytelling. Yeah. And we basically just worked on those two products, the discovery part and 
the publishing part. Mm. So we built a really great editor with like really interesting discovery tools. Still not perfect for sure, but those two things alone like brought enough organic attention our way. Yeah. Where yeah, like we started to build like actual revenue and things just kept going well. So the Atlanta Falcons were like the first NFL team ever to join. Yeah. <laughs> um, How about that serendipity right there? Yeah, yeah, and then as soon as I moved to Atlanta, I emailed whoever was on that account. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, hey, this is weird, but uh, you use my thing. Can we hang out? And they, and Mike Bedford, who is like the creative yes. director for the Falcons, yes. he like instantly was like, yep, where do you want to hang out? So I like, <laughs> he like lived down the street from where our air, original Airbnb was, and I hung out with him like the day of. Nice. And I was like, this is a nice like circle because yes. you were kind of one of the critical moments where like exposure started working for, yeah. for non, for organizational use or enterprise use versus... Mm-hmm consumers the story yeah. like everybody almost every organization has storytelling as part of their strategy to yeah. for whatever their goals is it like mm-hmm. fan development or like fundraising so like the wwf like World Wildlife foundation not wrestling <laughs> as i have to say every time signed up especially in the southeast <laughs> signed up super early yeah. um and they just share it started sharing these amazing conservation <laughs> conservation stories um, I was just like, I had no idea they were going to use this. Um, yeah. The charity water, like, if you go on, there's still some links on their website that go to yeah. charitywater.exposure.co. Like, the nonprofit world really picked up on it. Hmm. Um, and it's just something I never thought about. Like, sports, nonprofit, like, I built it to post my bougie <laughs> travel photos on. And, it, and, the, and the fit almost, like, found itself. And that yeah. was, like, an incredibly uh, lightning bolt moment. It was like, this... This is no longer going to be like a niche little tool. Sure. Like it moved into like, what if we fundamentally change the way people mm-hmm. tell stories on the internet? <laughs> At what point did you realize, wow, this is going to be something that I do for a long time. Like this is, is going <laughs> to be, this is going to be a big part of who I am for a long period of time and not just, Hey, I, I built this cool thing that I'm going to put up on the internet. Stress. Uh, the fact that I was willing to like, <laughs> grow some gray hairs and Mm. kind of rewire my nervous system to deal with um working on something like this like there's a lot uh, there's like a like a a popular graph in startup stuff where kind of like startups like you launch and it's it's exciting it drops out and you're in like the pit of despair and then you see the wiggles of hope and so (laughs) exposure has had several seasons of just like pit of despair for me yeah and we had a couple early on where just things organizationally like the way the studio is working just like it was really like awful yeah and i'm not worried about that i'm not an entrepreneur i like accidentally started a product and now like i'm growing a company um but i remember a couple instances being like i want to give this up right now mm. and then 20 minutes later being like nope like yeah. i like i really feel like i have something sure um and the and the fact that barely anything makes it mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had enough traction where it was really exciting for me. Yeah. Um, but honestly, yeah, like if like I'm not, I'm not a particularly, well, definitely have a, a thicker skin now, but those early days, it was like, I was really struggling. I was struggle bus. Yeah. Um, are you one of those people that early on when you, when you got the super critical, not kind, um, your product stinks email that you took that very personally? I still take that personally. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a, I mean, we're in a really great shape after five years. Like we have yeah. a really solid product, but we, you know, we have our MPS hovers at like 70. That's like pretty unheard of. Like mm. Tesla's have that. Mm. And you know, that's after thousands of MPS runs. Um, mm. But no, I'll still, 
you know, as a solo fender at this point like it like it is me like yeah. the product this thing out in the world for the most part is like very much me right and i walk around as like mr exposure in mr <laughs> elena um so it's those early days were incredibly rough to like try and try and understand that like one person's opinion matters but it shouldn't impact the mission yeah like that's very difficult to like separate mm. um but yeah it's i mean that stuff's still hard like yeah i'm a very <laughs> Very sensitive soul. So I'm very sure. unhappy when people are unhappy. I understand. <laughs> a question I ask most people uh, on the show, and I'd love to hear your, your answer to this, is what do you see down the line for exposure? What are the things that maybe you're working on or your long-term goals for what you want exposure to be? Uh, from like the company perspective, mm-hmm. like there's so much more to do in terms of discovery and like connecting storytelling community. Yeah, we're a great product that people love, but barely nobody knows about it. Mm. So it's kind of like in part time to start building and time to start selling. And when I say selling, I mean scaling. Mm. Um, and that's like not my wheelhouse. So as a you know as a product builder or entrepreneur, I'm like starting to learn lean into that and sure. understand how we how you take like a you know six figure a year business into like you know, eight, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, but we have like easy, we have easy routes for that, which like they've been open the whole time and just never worked on them. Um, but from like a grander vision perspective, it's like, it's time to start moving into different storytelling technologies. Mm. Uh, I've never had a native app, uh, never had a way for really people to tell stories like on, from the devices that everybody has. Like we're going to start moving into that. Mm. Um, and it's, definitely moving towards like what can we do for organizations like the UNDP who have hundreds of stories to tell or hundreds of departments worth of stories to tell like how do they start kind of putting that in one place Um, always been a huge fan of mediums publications and (laughs) they're now going away so I want to create a solution for those Um, so more of that Um, one of the more exciting things I want to work on is creating an economy around storytelling Um, people are storytelling like never before uh but most of the time they're you know putting it into a network or putting it on a network where it goes away or they're never gonna get paid for it yeah um i would love to create an economy there you can get paid in the same way that you can click publish like sure. those two things should be synonymous um so you know even if it's selling prints or paywalls or like mm-hmm. getting hired like there's a whole economy for the whole timeline of storytelling um yeah. be it like ideation and development or just like straight like oh you want to you know pay me a dollar to see my best places to work in atlanta guide yeah. or something like that um which is all 100 percent doable like it's never been better it's never been a better time to make that sort of stuff um and then kind of you know even larger term thinking like i would love to well i am going to build a business in atlanta and it's gonna be you know i want to hire atlanta people yeah. and yeah. In the super long term, I want to create, sounds kind of dumb, but bear with me, but I, I'd love to create like wealthy people in Atlanta mm-hmm. to go off and create their own businesses. Like that is like a whole like different goal for me now yeah. to understand that like if you create a diverse, a diverse group of experienced entrepreneurs, like mm-hmm. that would be uh, like an echo in time. Like that would, sounds really cool for me. <laughs> the exposure mafia. I, I, so I mean, like I was tweeting about this recently, and, uh, but like yeah. mafia is the wrong word. Yeah. Like there is a like a alumni or something like that. Sure, mafia sure. means like is too mean. Is <laughs> the wrong word. Um, there's there's better yeah. ways to do it, and like in, in my opinion, like 
Exposure is going to be successful because it has to be. Um, and I would love for the success to, you know, not just be you know, in work. It needs to be outward. And that's it for part one of this summer's Best of Atlanta Born and Brand Season 1. Again, if you want to hear more about these founders, check out their previous episodes for their complete interviews and stories. And we look forward to next week and bringing you much more of the Best of Atlanta Born and Brand Season 1. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all soon.